everyone. The Inside Influence team and I are taking an eight-week sabbatical this winter, or summer if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, to generally reset, recalibrate and refill our creative tanks. Now, for many of us, myself included, that means traveling across the world to see family members where it has been far too long between hugs. To keep you fueled while we're gone, fear not, we have traveled back through the archives, back through time, and pulled out four of our favorite Inside Influence episodes of all time. Now, I can also hand on heart say that each of these four episodes has, in some way, radically changed how I now show up, lead, and influence. If you're new to the Inside Influence crew, enjoy the ride. If you are a long-time listener, these are definitely conversations that are worth listening to for a second time. Stay safe, and we will see you back with our brand new season in August. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. What if I told you that as well as caffeine, chocolate, and your iPhone, you also had a yes addiction? My next guest, Chris Voss, was the FBI's lead kidnapping negotiator. And what that means is he had to understand influence at a level and with stakes that you and I can barely imagine. For his 24-year tenure in the FBI, he was trained in the art of negotiation at Scotland Yard, at Harvard Law School. He is also the recipient of the Attorney General's Award for Excellence in Law Enforcement and has taught business negotiation at a number of prestigious universities around the world. He is the founder and CEO of the Black Swan Group, and he's also, also the author of Never Split the Difference, which is a book that I genuinely cannot recommend highly enough if negotiating, persuading, or influencing is a part of your daily life, which I can promise you it is. In our conversation, we jumped into a number of really fascinating conversations, the first of which was how yes is actually the last thing we want to hear which blew my mind because I had assumed that negotiation was all about getting to a yes. And apparently not one single hostage negotiation technique is designed to get a yes. What are they designed for? You'll have to listen. Um, We talked about high stakes conversations. How does he prepare his mental state going into these conversations where literally lives are on the line? We talked about delivering bad news, how to do it quickly and efficiently and get straight into what's next. We talked about how you kick off a negotiation and probably more importantly, how you close it. Um, This conversation, I think, is by far one of my favorite ones in the podcast so far. Chris has so many years of experience in international crisis and high stakes um, conversations. And it really showed me again that all the theories and the ideas and the models in the world count for nothing until you have been down on the ground in a high stakes situation, and you've really had to put them to the test. I invite you to sit back, um, listen, take a fascinating peek behind the curtain of what has to have been one of the most interesting careers I've ever heard of. And as a result, take some tools and in the words of Chris, start negotiating like your life depends on it. Welcome to the show, Chris Voss. 
That Chris who? who? Chris Voss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have I pronounced oh, it Oh, that's right. No, you did it perfectly. Actually. <laughs> I had a moment of panic just then. <laughs> so I saw you again. We're, we're live from Arak at the moment. And I saw you on the stage this morning and you did, or around about lunchtime, and you did such an incredible job of kicking out all of the assumptions that I basically had about negotiation. And all right. I've been a salesperson, or at least for a part of my life, I've been a salesperson. And I was apparently doing it all wrong all that time. One of the things that you said in your book, which I loved, was hostage negotiations are anything but rational problem-solving situations. Have you ever tried to devise a win-win with a guy that thinks he's a messiah? (laughs) Now, that's obviously a very serious situation and a funny question. Right. And I think that that's a trap that we can all fall into. We go into a negotiation thinking, if I can just think of... You know, if I can treat myself as a rational being, if I can treat this other person as a rational being, right, we right. will find a way to rationally come to right. a solution. If I come up with a great argument. Oh, yeah. And stats. Ah, and stats, Preferably of course, right? a graph. Oh, there you go, right? Yep. Then, you know, I'm bound to win them over. And that, that just, in all your years of incredible experiences and negotiations that are literally, you know, to give them the gravity that they deserve, literally life or death situations, that hasn't been your experience at all. No, there's no such thing as, uh, it's hard for people to come to this, but there's no such thing as rationality. There's no such thing as logic. I mean, we do, we make our decisions based on what we care about. That by definition makes decision-making an emotional process, what you care about. You're driven by what you care about, your emotions, your passions, each and everything that you do. Um, And there's actually been some studies that have been done recently as a result of functioning of the brain, because these days people can have brain tumors removed. And um, supposedly the people are okay, they can still reason, but they can't make decisions. You know, I can, I can separate my socks by color, but I can't decide which pair of socks to put on. And it's a phenomenon that science has backed up just in, with the advances of, of medicine recently, because what was happening is people were undergoing brain surgery and losing their ability to make good decisions because of the interference in certain neural pathways in the brain, but they'd still pass intelligence tests. They could still pass an IQ test. And so if someone had a brain tumor and had it removed and they passed an IQ test, the doctors would say, all right, go back to work. But the person would, in fact, be disabled. And they wouldn't be able to go back and function at work. And, and, and the tests of the brain functioning would say, hey, you're fine. You're a slacker. You're using your medical condition as an excuse for not doing a good job. And people were genuinely disabled. And so they dug much more deeply into it. And they began to find out that when, as soon as you start separating our ability to reason from our emotions, we can no longer make decisions. So, uh, you know, I loved that line a long time ago from a Star Trek television show. Uh, uh, Leonard Nimoy Spock said, uh, logic is a butterfly flying in a breeze. Logic is a beautiful bouquet of flowers that smell bad. Uh, so there's no such thing as that. It's all, it's all a fiction. It's, uh, logic and reason are like beauty. They're in the eye of the beholder. And the unique wants and needs and emotions of right. that particular beholder. Right, right. That's, that's kind of overwhelming for yeah. most people, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah. You, oh, I've had some people argue with me violently about it. Because you, I, you, I can feel my whole body, you so want to be able to make a compelling case. Uh-huh. And I guess what you're saying is, and tell me if I'm wrong, you can make a compelling case, but just not the way that you think 
you should be doing Well, you can as long as you understand what the other person's being driven by. Right. Uh, that's, that's when you can make a compelling case. And when you can see it from their perspective, when you can see what they're being driven by, which is what great politicians do. What politician ever made a logical argument? Mm. I mean, they don't. They appeal to the passions of those who will vote for them. Mm. And you told an amazing story this morning um, about a kidnapping in Haiti. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you'd like to share that story because I thought it was a, a really interesting example of exactly what you're talking about. Well, a uh, 12-year-old boy gets kidnapped in Haiti. He's taken in a typical uh, type of kidnapping kidnapping at the time, which is a carjacking. They carjack a car with multiple occupants. The bad guys take the car and an occupant, and they let the other person go. They go find a ransom. 12-year-old boy happens to be an American citizen. His father knows that since his son is a citizen, father is not, but the U.S. government's supposed to help if American citizens get kidnapped. He contacts the embassy, and the embassy says, the FBI will help you. And I'm sure he imagined like ninjas repelling from helicopters <laughs> within 10 minutes into his front yard to help him. Uh, but instead, about 20 minutes later, he gets a call from some guy who says he's in Washington, D.C., and says his name is Chris Voss, and he's going to help with the kidnapping. And he literally says to me on the phone, you're in Washington, D.C.? How are you going to help me? Now, I realize, um, and I'm not rattled by this because I know what to say, but I realize I've got about three seconds before this guy hangs up the phone. And I also have done this wrong before. I've, uh, when I've had people internationally cre- question whether or not I was the right guy for the job, I would trot out my credentials. FBI, 24 years, you know, trained as a hostage negotiator, trained with Scotland Yard, you know, did this, did that. And nobody ever cared, ever. Um, the first time I tried it, I, we actually got in the Philippines. We got into an argument with the, the top cabinet-level officials. Everyone below the president of the country questioned whether or not I knew what I was doing because I tried it out my credentials. So I know that doesn't work. Instead, um, what I say to the father is, all right, here's what you're faced with. Uh, Haitian kidnappers are not killing kidnap victims. I realize that's really stupid because Haitian kidnappers and Haitian criminals kill each other at the drop of a hat for no reason whatsoever, but they're not killing kidnap victims. That's just the way it is. Now, today is Thursday, and Haitian kidnappers love the party on Saturday night. So if you follow my guidance and if you do what I ask you to do, we'll have your son out by late Friday or early Saturday morning. And he said, tell me what you want me to do. Now, no time in the conversation or the duration of the kidnapping did he ever ask me about my credentials. He never asked me how many kidnappings I worked. He never asked me how long I'd been an FBI agent. He never asked me how many countries I'd been in. He never asked me how many times I'd been to Haiti. I'd, at that point in time, I'd worked a number of kidnappings in Haiti. I'd never actually been there, ever, because I know the kidnapping and I know how quickly they go down, if handled properly. He didn't ask me if uh, I spoke the language. I don't. I don't need to. I understand uh, negotiation dynamics, and negotiation dynamics are based on human nature dynamics, which means it doesn't matter if it's in Haiti or Nigeria or Cape Town, South Africa, or Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> so... <laughs> They're the same types of human nature dynamics. And uh, I understood how I needed to communicate with them throughout the, the duration of the kidnapping. We had a son out Saturday morning. So his, his need in that situation, which is exactly the same need that I would have and I think most people would have, 
is to know that you knew what you were doing. Exactly. That you understood the landscape that was being played on and that you could essentially hold his hand through this and show him the right way. Right. I see the landscape and I see what he sees. Because if I can see the landscape and what he sees, there's a really good chance that I can understand how to fix it. So a negotiation starts. There's that first... Let there be light. Let there be light. There is the (laughs) beginnings of a negotiation. The beginning. The initial phone call. Right. How do you... I'm I'm imagining the first 30 seconds is pretty critical in that, where you've got to somehow be able to connect with the kidnappers, build some kind of rapport or relationship so that this conversation can keep going. Well, and then it's understanding the context. Um, how much context is there to be understood going in? How, how much, depending upon the context, you want to start displaying understanding from the very beginning. Um, so you might not, you might have a lot of information. You might not. You might only have the most smallest amount of information. We have to make educated guesses. Educated guesses are okay as long as you're not married to them. There's an old saying by Colin Powell, um, a general, an American general secretary of state. And Powell used to say, uh, never let your ego get so attached to a position that if the position collapses, your ego goes with it. So as long as you're flexible at the beginning and you're willing to be wrong and you're willing to be wrong on the way to getting it right, um, you can start communication very, very early on and begin to find out what's going on. So if it's kidnapping, it's, if it's a hostage taking, by definition, somebody's mad about something. And I'm going to want to get at what they're mad about and what made them. I know they made the decision to engage in something that is either had violence at the very beginning or threatens violence. Those are also angry things to do. People don't, who are, don't do that if they're happy. You know, they're angry, they're resentful, they're trying, they're seeking justice either for themselves as an individual or for their group or for who they represent or both. I know all that from the very beginning because some sort of um, angry act has taken place. I know a lot about what's going on even before the conversation starts. And how would, um, so most of us aren't going to find ourselves, thank goodness, hopefully, in that type of situation. Right. And so how would that knowledge that you've built over those years apply in a typical negotiation that would happen? could be a negotiation with a client. It could be a negotiation with a a colleague or the ones that probably happen the most frequently, a negotiation with your children. Children are terrorists. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are are days when I would definitely vote for that. Yeah. All right, well, then it's it's the willingness to... what we call a cold read or what I call a cold read, we and my company, because, you know, we think in advance our processes as a team, but um, it's being willing to just start making educated guesses from the very beginning to get the other side talking. Uh, Because, you know, my hypothesis, my educated guess from the beginning, if I get it right, the person I'm talking to is going to like it because I'm insightful. If I get it wrong, they're going to want to correct me, which now begins a dialogue. And now I can start to adapt. Now we can we can start to go back and forth, and I can demonstrate that I'm paying attention. Mm. Now I'm going to try to trigger the other side talking as much as possible. You know, another phrase that we like a lot is um, he or she who talks most loses. So I'm going to get you talking. And I know that there's stuff you're dying to tell me, stuff that you really want. You wouldn't be talking to me at all if you didn't have something to say. So all I got to do is get you talking, and regardless of what the deal is, 
some have said negotiation is the art of uh, letting the other side have your way. Well, I get you talking enough. You feel in control. And eventually you say something I really like. And then I look at you and I go, brilliant. That's a great idea. As long as I don't have to win openly, if I, if I don't have to make you lose, then we'll make a, we'll make a good deal. Are there a couple of questions that you tend to keep in your back pocket that work really well to get to get somebody talking, to start that dialogue going? Well, um, all right, so you asked me that I have questions because the purpose of a question is to gather information. Uh, that's only one of two great ways to gather information. Sometimes people are really defensive around questions. So there are specific things I'm going to say. The flip side, uh, if somebody doesn't want to answer questions, I'm going to use a tool that we call labels. And I might say, um, I might say, what have you got in mind? That's a question. Or I might say, seems like you've got something in mind. That's a label. You're going to respond to one of those two. You're, Overall, more people are more likely to respond to a label because it's just a statement. I'm not trying to get you to respond. And since I'm not trying to pull a response out of you, you're more likely to give me a response, even an unguarded response as a result of a label. Or, you know, then the other one, when we're really showing off, we'll, in, uh, we'll intentionally mislabel because human beings love to correct others. So I might say, seems like you have no idea how this is going to proceed. And you'll go, no, 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 this is what I want. This is what I've been thinking about. Because, you know, that's unguarded correction. You feel really powerful when you correct me. And you're more likely to say things to me when you're correcting me Mm. that you wouldn't say otherwise. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. If you're, now that you've said it, as soon as someone asks you a question, you, you immediately limit almost the response that you're going to give. A lot of people do, mm. right. Yep. Because it's a source of information is a source of power. So if right. I give over my information, there's my power gone. Right. But if you say something to me, as you say, like a mislabel, that goes out of the window and I just want to correct, correct you. Right. One of the things that you said in your, in your presentation was that we have a yes addiction. Uh, in any kind of, well, in society in general, we have a yes addiction. And in any kind of negotiation, we have a yes addiction. We, right. We're searching for a yes. Yeah, we're dying for it. Yeah, and that's not actually what we should be searching for, which is, again, another one of those moments where I was going, we don't, I don't want, how can I not want a yes? Uh-huh. Like I'm looking for agreement. How can I not right, want a yes? Right. Can you walk through your it. thinking on getting rid of the yes? Yeah, well, um, so as how yes falls on our ears, when we hear it, we love it. Uh, it's been said it's one of the most beautiful words in the, in the English language, if not in any language. But like we love the word, yes, we love it. We love it. But people are, are often tried, uh, people try to lead you into a trap so often. As soon as I start trying to get you to say yes, you're going to wonder where is this going? If the answer is yes, where is this going? And you and you know when I'm trying to get you to say yes. So there's a coercion in there that additionally, besides what am I letting myself in for when I say this, you know that's what I want you to say, which then makes you doubly on guard. So there's the first problem. We, you know, the uh, uh, yes is commitment. So we cons- we're concerned about what are, we're letting ourselves in for. And then secondly, because it's such a trap, uh, there are actually three kinds of yeses. There's commitment. 
There's confirmation, which leads to commitment. But since everybody knows yes is a trap, then most people give the counterfeit yes. Can you give me an example of a counterfeit yes? Well, if you say to me, would you like to make more money? I know you've got something in mind. And if I say yes to that, it's quite, it's blatantly obvious. There isn't a person on a planet that doesn't want to make more money. But I want to know what you have in mind. So I'll go, yeah, because I, I want information from you. Now, also, since you, I figure you're trying to lead me into a trap, I trust you less. Since I figure you're trying to trap me, I have less of a problem giving you a counterfeit yes. You know, I, I ask no shortage of business people. I, I, I'll ask them, have you ever been told yes only to find out later it was a no? And everybody goes, yeah, because of the counterfeit yes. You know, if you're talking to me, you, I, by definition, you probably have information I could use. So I want that information. I want to get it and I want to move on. If you're giving me a sales pitch, I'll listen to your sales pitch. It's going to make me smarter. I may have no intention of ever buying from you, but I want the information. So I don't mind that you knock yourself out with all these yes questions because I want to know what you're going to say. And then, then I'm going to move on. So we're not going. We're not going for a yes. We're not aiming for a yes. What are we aiming for? Uh, the Stephen Covey advice from way back when was: seek first to understand, then be understood. How do you know for sure that the other that you completely understood the other side, everything that they've had to say, when they look at you and say, "That's right." That's what people say when they're completely. They feel completely understood. A bunch of crazy things happen simultaneously when somebody says that's right. Since the other person feels completely understood, they actually now feel this empathy bond with you. Empathy's been established, and people are enormously grateful for that. They don't know it in many cases. They have a tendency to drop their guard. They have a tendency to be much more collaborative. Also, there's a really good chance if you're really listening to what they're saying between the lines, you've repeated something back to them that's true. They just forgot it was true. People are driven by things that they're they're either hiding from others or that they've been driven by for so long they're blind to it. And when you point that kind of stuff out to them, then it's my, my co-writer, Tal Raz, said he thinks this is an epiphany moment. When you say that's right, you've, you experience a subtle epiphany. And you actually you do. I was in a conversation knowing that this is a dynamic. Um, about a year and a half ago, I, I'm talking about before my book comes out, and I was feeling all this anxiety about whether or not anybody's going to buy the book. You know, somebody besides my mom might buy it. You know, and mom and I had to give mom a copy anyway. I was gonna say your mom bought, you didn't give a free copy yeah, to your gotta, mom. Gotta give, gotta give mom a copy, so that's not even a sale. <laughs> Uh, but I'm sitting there talking, and the person is summarizing everything to me and, and in such a ways that as the person I was talking with was summarizing how I felt and the anxiety that I felt and the facts and circumstances, I could see the that, that's right moment coming, which I was kind of fascinated by because I thought to myself, I'm getting ready to say that's right to this in a moment. I wonder what's going to happen. And literally... When she finished and I said, that's right. I mean, I literally felt clarity. I, I, and it was a, it was a, cl a clarity moment. The chemical changes take place in a brain, the dopamine and serotonin that get, re get released. And I was grateful for it. I mean, it felt 
really good. What she had said made me feel really good, and I was grateful to her for it. And it was just a passing conversation with someone that I didn't even know that well. So the that's right moment tends to really play well with the person who says it towards the person that got them to say it. So are you are you essentially talking there about empathy? Yeah. To show empathy to somebody as right. in I have taken the time to put myself in your shoes, to consider how you must be feeling, to consider your position, to consider all the needs and wants that may or may not be being met right now. You open the door for them, as in the example you just gave, to suddenly step out of their position and take a look at yours as well. Well, but this is not your grandfather's empathy. And it's also not the empathy of even 10 years ago because empathy has come to become synonymous with sympathy, and it mm. is not. Mm. Not, not, not synonymous. You know, I could empathize with your position is what a lot of people say with, I feel bad for you, I'm sorry. Um, it's not I'm sorry. So what's the distinction? Um, empathy is pure understanding with neither agreement nor disagreement. And if you can define empathy as pure understanding, no agreement, no disagreement, and this very narrow definition, which is ridiculously powerful, then you can exercise empathy with anybody. As an FBI hostage negotiator, I can exercise empathy with an ISIS killer because all I have to do is understand where they're coming from and be able to articulate it. And that was the definition as an FBI hostage negotiator. I'm not negotiating with people that I agree with or that I have anything in common with. I'm negotiating with people who, if we were face-to-face, each of us would happily shoot the other because we, what we stand for are total opposites. And that's who I have to negotiate with. So sympathy isn't, there's no factor whatsoever. I'm handicapped by sympathy. I'm handicapped by common ground. If I define empathy in this fashion, then my empathy is limitless. And I like limitless skills. Limitless skills, that's that's a a beautiful phrase just in and of itself to to be explored. I'm going to be thinking about that for probably the next 24 hours. Um... So let's let's go from here. You've got you've you've started the negotiation. Tried to find their wants and needs. You you're aiming for the that's right as opposed to as opposed to the yes. Right. Another thing you said in your book is, which again was one of these moments where I suddenly went, "Wow, I've been thinking about this all wrong." Was you said you don't go for a win-win. No, win-win's you're, a horrible idea. Yeah, you're never looking for a win-win, which again I have been always looking. I would even say it to my team, where's the win-win in this? We've just got to find the win-win. You don't go for a win-win. And you used this beautiful phrase when you said, you know, a compromise, which is essentially what a win-win is, a compromise in a hostage negotiation is that two people come out of a li- alive and two people don't. <laughs> and, you know, that's not a good... How does that work out, right? Not a good outcome. So if you're not looking for a win-win, you're not looking for a compromise, what, do you, what are you looking for? All right, so win-win compromise, lots of different definitions for a lot, a lot of different people. Um, there has to be mutual benefit, at least psychologically, for both sides. What really, what it really gets down to is that you know a lot of people will walk away from a negotiation that would make them better off. It just wouldn't make them better off enough. 
Like it, it's shocking how many people are happy, would prefer zero to a dollar. I engage in a negotiation. I walk away with nothing. I get I get zero for that. Um, even if I don't like the price, if I engage in the same negotiation, get anything, I'm by definition better off. That's a win win. I give I give you a dollar for your time. You you were better off. So win win becomes sort of again like beauty in the eye of the beholder. Striving in practice. Win-win is a, one of the great fictions that other people use to just really kill you with. Uh, the sooner somebody uses in an interaction, quite frequently, somebody says right off the bat, they look at me and say, hey, look, let's, you know, I want a great deal. I want a win-win. If that's in the first three minutes of the conversation, they're trying to pick my pocket. I know that they have and they plan on giving me zero dollars or next to nothing the sooner they bring that up. Because what, what they want to do is um, they'll move the goalposts. They'll move. They, they like to high anchor. They like to what, sir? Um, somebody wants $100 from me, then they'll say they want $500 from me. So that when we settle at 100 I feel good. Ah, so you got the win-win. I felt like I did well. You wanted 500 mm. I, I gave you 100 Look how good I did. Well, you wanted 100 all along. You said, look, hey, you know, let's, let's, not, let's get a win-win deal here. You know, I need $500. Oh, well, now maybe we'll compromise meet in the middle. I'll settle for $100. I'll settle for $150. I'll let you talk me down to $100. I'll get you to work real hard to get me down to $100, which is where I was going all along anyway. And I've seen very consistently people, a lot of people who come up to me and ask me about win-win tend to be the people who are high anchor. You know, there's a, there's a saying, you know, the person who offers to meet you in the middle is often a poor judge of distance. <laughs> so what you're saying is that if they've offered to meet you in the middle, it's not the middle. It, it never was the middle. They're very high in the beginning right. so that the middle is their win and, right. you, and your loss. And it works. That's why so many people do it. That because it works. It's quick. It's easy. Mm. Um, if If I get you to do it, you're not that good of a negotiator anyway, so I need to pick your pocket before somebody else does. So what's and, and I agree. I mean, I've, now that I've heard you walk through that, I've heard people do that. You know, we'll start at five hundred. We know eventually we'll end up at two fifty. Right. We'll split the difference. We'll end up at two fifty. That's what we wanted anyway. Right. So if you're not going for a win-win and you're not going for a compromise. What are you going for? Like, are you, do you go into a negotiation going, this is what I want. It will not change. It will not shift. It is this. Do you, do you go in that firm? Um, you better not. Okay. You're asking to miss great deals. You know, what I want is a great deal. By definition, you're going to be hiding things from me. Hiding, you know, if you want to use a poker analogy, you're hiding cards. I'm hiding cards. We're both hiding cards. If we're hiding information, we only hide stuff, it's important. So I'm hiding stuff that if I could put it on the table, we could make a great deal, but I'm scared to because I don't trust you. Now, here's where the thinking gets a little bit tricky, but it's the overlap of unknowns. I don't know where my hidden cards overlap with your hidden cards. I have no way of knowing that. Because you're holding information 
that there's no way I could know, or it might take me weeks to find out, or your proprietary information. I may think you've got all the leverage in the world when, in fact, your boss told me if you didn't make the deal this week, you were going to get fired. Or I may think I've got all the leverage in the world and you just closed a great deal and you're not hungry. Or you don't see me as a great long-term partner. Or there's just so many different things in the overlap of the hidden cards. I want to know what the, I want to know what the overlap is. Uh, by definition, if I can get at that, there's a better deal than whatever I had in mind to begin with. Might not be a lot, but I really want to know what it is. You've got something I have no idea you have that if I knew you had it, I'd really want it. I was um, uh, advising uh, a woman in Los Angeles in Hollywood recently. She's trying to put together uh, a B-movie, if you will, um, you know, a lower-budget movie uh, with a relatively— It was she needed $300,000 in financing. The person she's going to get the financing from uh, is, a, is a wealthy young lady, and she wants to finance, but only if not only can she star in the movie, but she wants to star in both roles. I'm struggling to get my head around that, but okay. Well, you know, and ever since, uh, what was it, the movie, The Social Network, about the founding of Facebook? Oh, yeah. There was an actor, one actor played the Winklevoss twins. Ah, uh, okay. So now every actor wants to do that. You know, not only can I play one character, I can play two in the same film. You know, it's a, it's a real ego-driven thing. The woman that I'm uh, advising, she says, I, if I, I need her $300,000, but if I let her play both roles, it's going to double the budget of the film and I can't make it now. So this is a deal I can't make. I said, you know, just sit down and help her try to discover how hard it's going to be for you to make the deal. All you want to do is get her to discover the problem and you're going to use these negotiation skills to open her eyes. She sends me an email back a couple of days later. You're not going to believe what I found out. Well, it turns out the woman who wants to put up the $300,000 owns a castle in France. Now, a second movie is being discussed, and in a two-movie deal with potentially another million dollars involved with a castle in France as a shooting location for no cost, she now says, I'll let her play both roles in the first movie because now i got a two-movie deal going on. She had no way of knowing this woman owns a castle in France or that she might want to shoot another film there. And so you don't know what the other person's hiding. It might be something good. It might be something irrelevant. It might be a castle in France. But until you engage in a conversation and get somebody comfortable talking with you, sharing that kind of stuff, that's when you find that out. There's a better deal to be had. One of the questions you asked repeatedly in the book or kept seeing come up in pretty much every chapter in the book was, how am I supposed to how do that? How am I supposed to do yeah. that? Yeah. And I kept seeing that you were asking it over and over again and getting amazing results. And to give some context around that, I'm imagining that this woman in question sat down with the actress, you know, laid out the problem and said, you know, I want to make this work, but how am I, how am I supposed to do that? Is that one of the ways, is that one of the tools that you give people to unlock some of these cards that haven't been put on the table? You know, that's the quickest and fastest way to do it. 
I mean, so many people are, are horrified to say that. But that is the fastest, most applicable, from 13-year-old kids who want video games to plumbers and landscape architects to money financiers to um, it's applicable to every kind of negotiation. Now, it has to be said deferentially. You know, it's not. You don't say it as an accusation. Like how? How am I supposed to do that? Right. Like, like uh, the tone of voice that says, "I think you're an idiot." Mm. That's the dumbest thing I ever heard. How am I supposed to do that? Communicates in tone of voice that I, you know, I think you're a bozo. But the way you said it before, this it was, you know, if I do this and I do that, it's going to increase the, the the budget of the film beyond what we have. How am I supposed to do that? Um, my son Brandon labeled this for us once forced empathy. If you ask how am I supposed to do that, the other makes the other person stop and think, take a look at your position. It makes them feel in control. And when people feel in control and they took a hard look at the situation, then they get the opportunity to come up with answers. They feel even more in control. I mean, it, it works on so many levels. Some people pick it up immediately. As soon as they've, I, I get no shortage of people that, and that question, how am I supposed to do that, comes up in the first five pages. I've gotten emails from literally hundreds of people saying that they cut deals before they finish the first chapter. Some people are scared to say it, and they imagine saying it wrong. And then, of course, they imagine the person on the other side of the table saying, because you have to. Well, actually, if you're doing it right, you should keep saying it till the other person says, because you have to. Because what, where you are when that happens, you've pushed the other person as far as you possibly can, and they're still at the table. They've just said, I've given you all I can possibly give you, at least on this particular issue. This is the limit, mm. which is a negotiator's job to push them to that limit if need be, but not away from the table. When someone says that they haven't gotten up and stormed off, they're still at the table. And enough people that I've coached or taught actually do that till the other side says, look, if you want the deal, you're going to do it. And then they go, okay, let's make a deal. They're happy. They've done their job. It also goes back to what you were saying earlier, which is we have an innate desire, A, to correct, which is what we were talking about earlier, right. but we've also got an innate desire to solve problems. Right. We can't help it. If someone puts a problem in front of us, right. immediately our brains, we're like, oh, well, let's have a look at this. Right, right. Our brains immediately go into problem solving. Right. So you've invited them pretty much to solve your problem for you. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Another thing you said this morning is how something ends, how an interaction ends, right. is pretty much the lasting impression that someone will will leave with. And that's been true in my experiences as right. well. You know, you're, right. you're going into a negotiation, you've got good rapport, it's going well. And then just towards the end of that negotiation, they pull a trick or something happens and you think, that just left me with a really nasty oh, taste. Oh, God, yeah. The last impression is a lasting impression. Yeah. And what people end up doing wrong so many times, whether it's a verbal interaction and it's gotten contentious or they do this in emails all along, they try to be nice up front and they try to be nice, but they're getting more and more angry. And then, then they get to what something that's really burning. The old, by the way, 
or the yes, but you're an idiot. Um, and there's things when they should have stopped talking, they keep going. They say something really negative. We've got a uh, we've got a company that we do some business with, and um, occasionally the negotiations get contentious. Uh, and one of the emails I got from their principal one time, this person laid out a line of reasoning, and she really felt that we didn't appreciate their intellectual contribution. And the last thing in her email was a shot. It was just, you know, don't forget that we did this for you. And, you Um, know, it was a, it was a, it was a bit of a cheap shot. And that resonated in my ears because she tried to be understanding through the email. She tried to be rational. And the more she thought about it, the more it bothered her. And that's how she finished the email. And that is what rang in my ears, played in my head over and over and over again, the parting shot that was in the email. Mm. So if you got something negative to say, and you may, just don't let it be last because that's what rings in people's ears. Mm. That's what gets echoed in their head over and over and over again. No matter, even if it's somebody like me who's supposed to know better. I'm still a human being. I'm still wired with the same emotional architecture that everybody else has. And that echoed in my ears. And to, you know, and now I, and now that I've got some distance over it, I could say, all right, you know, she didn't know any better. She didn't realize what she was doing, but boy, is that dumb. Mm. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change, change um, direction now, away from tactics for a second, and I want to talk about state. And we had a, a brief conversation before going on air, and I was talking about is there anything that you do prior to these, prior to these phone calls where you've got to get it right, there's no, sec- there's no second shot at these phone calls. Is there anything that you personally do to get yourself in state, get your mind right, get your emotions in check? Do you have a process you go through? Do you go in another room, listen to a song? I'm making it up. Is, no, it's, it's, just, it's just reminding myself to be open. You know, I'll make a guess. You know, this could go one of four or five different ways. I just got to figure out which one it is. The, the main thing is not getting focused on how you think it's going to go. And if you, if you could do that, then you're in pretty good shape. Um, if you're focused for the, if you prepared for the most negative response from the other side, you're not going to get caught off guard by anything because nothing's going to, all the stuff to catch you off guard are going to be positive things. You're going to be delighted. Oh, this is, you're a lot more cooperative than I expected. You know, we've actually got a process in our negotiations where our best preparation is sit down and write down all of the horrible names the other side could call you. And if you if you if you're fair, and you're willing to recognize that there's a ton of them, um, nobody gets caught off guard at the table when they take that approach. When you're when you're prepped for an angry response, and you have good solid emotional intelligence ways of dealing with that, then you just don't get caught off guard. Can you name a couple of those? A couple of healthy responses when things go off track. Uh, well, um, somebody says, you know, you guys have been pushing us around for years um, and you're not paying attention to us and you're trying to you're trying to throw your weight around in the industry. And I might say, what sounds like that really bothers you? 
or if in no matter how insane the other side is, if I say, sounds like you got good reason for saying that. Oh yeah, I could feel that. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna. It's going to take the wind out of their sails. It's going to take the steam out of their anger. They're going to, they're going to be shocked that I'm actually willing to listen. Um, and there, and there's a few, there's a few that are like that. That no matter what the other side says, you could always say it sounds like you got good reason for saying that. It sounds like you've given this a lot of thought. If somebody explodes at you, they have given it a lot of thought. They've been thinking about it for days. They've been driving themselves crazy. Having the conversation a hundred times in their head. Uh, yeah. So it sounds like you're giving us a lot of thought. It's like a go-to response, no matter how insane they seem to be. <laughs> you also said in your book that even after 20 years of those types of negotiations, you still felt fear. You, could, you were still capable of feeling fear when you walked into them. Right. Right. Is that still true now? You know, it was the first time I'm in Australia in, a, in a, this huge real estate conference. You know, if it goes well, that could be really good. And I could say, wow, you know, boy, I better, if I screw this up, you know, all this opportunity, you know, if I, if I stand there and I just stare at him or if I stutter or, you know, if I forget what I want to say, I could really screw this up. You know, I could, I could, and there were moments that when I was getting ready to talk today that I was letting myself get a little bit nervous. Because, you know, there was, there's this tremendous opportunity there. And if I screw up, you know, I might lose all this opportunity. So, yeah, I could still do that to myself sometimes. I think the gratitude, again, you mentioned it at the beginning, and it's a, we're nearly finished now, and I think it's a great, like, full circle moment to come back to that, to be grateful to be there, to be grateful to be having the conversation, to be grateful to, yeah. of everything that's gone right up until now. I had a conversation with somebody, a friend, last week. She's just starting out in business and she was describing to me this meeting that she had had, one of those meetings where you feel like saying at the end, can we just both pretend this has never happened? <laughs> because I was not at my best and I feel like I've just totally screwed it up. And, um, and even in those meetings, and I've had plenty of those myself, even in those meetings, I can remember one vividly walking away and going, at the very least, the questions they asked me in that meeting, even though I stuffed up answering all of them, those questions have really helped me solidify what the offering should be or even all what right, our brochure right. should look like because the fact that they asked me those questions means, great, I'm going to use those questions and answer them even in our brochure. Right. So there's always something that you can go, I'm just grateful for that. Right, right, Grateful right. that I got that piece. Right. I'm going to close with the question I always close with, which is if I were to give you the stage and in front of you was everybody that you could ever want to influence and I handed you a microphone because I have these magical powers, obviously. Very good. You're, you're, you're like uh, you were you a much younger, much more attractive version of Gandalf. Is that it? <laughs> I was going to say a fairy, but actually I'll take Gandalf. He's way cooler. Way, way cooler. <laughs> Gandalf or Yoda, if I had a choice. Um What's the one thing? What's the one thing that you would want them to know if, if I said you could only have them leave with one thing? Um, let the other side go first. It's going to make you smarter. You don't have to do what they say. More times than not, like 70 to 75% of the time, 
you're, you will be instantly better off. Now, if I took you to Las Vegas and gave you a gambling system that works 75% of the time, you would own Vegas. Steve Wynn and Donald Trump would be your assistants. They'd be working for you. But the fact that something might fail 25% of the time horrifies people. Because, you know, it, well, what if it doesn't work out? You know, what if they say something that I don't like or that hurts my feelings? Sometimes they're going to do that. But it's going to be such a minority of the time that if you're just playing the odds, you'll be so much better off. But most people are afraid to do that because they remember that one time they were attacked. Or they remember that one time they thought they lost the advantage. Or they remember that one time where the other person said, take it or leave it. You know, if you don't sign this deal, it's going to be hard on you. People say that in business deals. Those, the negative outcomes of letting the other side go first are a minority. But we remember the negativity far more than we remember the successes. So, you know, give yourself room to be human. Understand you're naturally overly negative. That's what kept us alive when we were cavemen. But that's not what keeps us alive today. So be willing to play the odds. Let the other side go first. And by letting the other side go first, you mean put their position across first. Put their position across first. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.